and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Linda Lloyd, and it's my pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Child Shelburne, author of Holding On to Nothing, published by Blair. Elizabeth, welcome to Book Talk. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Now, you're originally from East Tennessee. I am. So I grew up on a farm in Sergoinsville until I was about five, which is very, very, very east. And then we moved into a little bit even more east into Kingsport, okay. um, into the Tri-Cities. Well, the reason that I ask is I was afraid that you were talking about my family because <laughs> I'm also from East Tennessee. Oh, and there are a couple of characters that really could have been part of my family. So we're more on the Kentucky line where you're up on the Virginia line. Yeah, it's about five minutes to Virginia, to Gate City from where I grew up. Okay. So very close. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You could go up there to get alcohol and cigarettes. Because you have to go across the state line, You right? got to, they're cheaper. You got to yeah, go do in it. Kentucky was yeah. like that as well. Yeah, so I know exactly what you mean. And I grew up in a dry county, mm-hmm. and yours obviously was too at first. Yes. But as the story develops, it kind of changes. I fictionalize the county because it's actually still dry. You can buy beer, but you can't buy hard alcohol in the county where the book is set, sort of what my imagining was for it. So yeah, I fictionalized that because I wanted to be able to sort of add in some more hard alcohol. Right. Well, now the book, Holding On To Nothing, is also a Dolly Parton, Porter Wagner song. Yes. And every time I read the title, I hear the song. (laughs) So did the song come first? Or did the book just seem to fit the song? The working title for the book was Little Sparrow, another Dolly Parton song. So clearly a lot of Dolly Parton inspiration. But when we were trying to come up with the the title with my publishing house with my editors, Little Sparrow didn't quite fit both protagonists' story. It didn't seem to work for both of them. But we wanted to stay with a Dolly Parton song because we sort of just love the idea of paying tribute to her because I love her, my house loves her. So then we found Holding On To Nothing and we're like, oh, this is perfect. Perfect title. Well, and it does seem to fit both characters because Lucy Kilgore, who is the girl who has plans big plans. And she's going to get out. Explain what getting out means in a small rural Tennessee town, because I knew exactly what you meant. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny when you say big plans, if someone from somewhere else might look at that and be like, those don't seem like very big plans. (laughs) But for Lucy, they were they were really big. She wanted just to sort of move to Knoxville, like an hour, 20 minutes down the road and try to get a job there and take one class at a time towards getting a degree. Again, it was, she wasn't even trying to go to college full-time. She just wanted to do one class at a time and try to work her way towards it. So those were her big plans, which for her were very big and had been hard to accomplish. She'd lost her parents when she was 13 in a car accident. And so I think anytime you experience loss like that when you're a kid, it makes all those goals and dreams seem that much harder. So for her, those were her big plans. Were you the same when you were growing up? Because you didn't stay in Tennessee to go to college. I didn't. And I was talking with someone about this last night, and I I don't even really know why, but I had a bug in me that I wanted to try to get out. I think I had a vision that, you know, some of the things that bothered me about growing up where I did wouldn't exist elsewhere. You know, I think I thought this is really particularly an 18-year-old fallacy, I think, but I thought that there wouldn't be racism or misogyny or any of the issues that I I was frustrated with. And as it turns out, those exist everywhere. (laughs) I found them in Massachusetts just the same, just maybe expressed slightly differently but they were still there. So I had a bug in me to get out, to leave and go somewhere else for school and manage to make it happen. Why didn't you come back to Tennessee? Because you're still in Boston, right? I am. It's a good question. It wasn't a design 
choice necessarily. <laughs> it was just sort of how life worked out. I graduated from college. I got an internship at the Atlantic Monthly Magazine when they were still in Boston and worked there for the summer and then went to New York to try to get a job because I wanted to stay working in magazines and in book publishing. And there were no jobs. And then September 11 happened while I was there. And then there were really no jobs. And The Atlantic had an editor job that opened up. And if you want to work in magazines, that's a pretty great one to work at. So I knew I'd be a fool to turn that down. So I went back to Boston and stayed there. And then my now husband, then boyfriend, came up for graduate school. And then he got a job in Boston. And we always laugh. We're sort of like, Boston's like the mob. We'll we'll think we're ready to leave and try to get out. And then we'll get pulled back in. Exactly. So just jobs and life and school and, you know, the things that happen that land you in a place, even if you didn't necessarily intend that that was going to be your place. And that's what happens to Lucy. Lucy is determined to get out. Like you said, she's going to go to Knoxville. She's going to get a job. She's going to go to school, which doesn't happen to everybody in her town. No. As a matter of fact, it doesn't happen to many people in her town. But then she has something happen. She actually gets pregnant. Mm -hmm. And she can't do that anymore. So do you think it's the circumstances that just make us make those hard changes? Because she had other, she didn't really consider other choices, though. I mean, she decided that she was going to have the baby. Yeah, I mean, I think she briefly, someone asked her, you know, will you have an abortion? But I think just for her, her circumstances, where she grew up, you know, how she was raised, it wasn't really a thought or a choice that she would have, I think, pursued. Lucy's a really kind and and loving person who has a lot of empathy for a lot of people, which is sometimes her downfall. She can really see the other side of things. So I don't think she has anything against people who do, but I just think for her it wasn't a choice that she would have made. And I think also she, having lost her family so early, she Mm -hmm. there's a moment early in the book where she realizes that she kind of feels a little glimmer of delight about the fact that she's pregnant and thinks, oh my gosh, this is going to be my family. It's not going to be a pieced together family or a cobbled together family. It's going to actually be family. And for her, having not had a family for so long, there's something really, really welcoming about that. Why do you think that she had a traditional family in mind this whole time? Because she really wanted a family. She wanted the mom and the dad and the baby And maybe two kids down the road, you know, she had already built that in her mind. Why was that family like that, a traditional type family, so important to her? That's a good question. I think it was what her family had looked like before she lost her parents. And I think sometimes when loss like that happens, you can spend a lot of time trying to recreate what was lost. And so I think for her, she's just trying to put in place the family that she'd known and sort of resurrect it and bring it back. Well, the young man that gets her pregnant, he's in a band called A Boy Named Sue. Yes. And he's playing at the bar where she's working part-time. She works really hard because she's got two jobs. Yeah. Just kind of because she's in love with a song, they, you know, end up and she ends up getting pregnant. But he's from a family that is so totally different than her family. This is a family that is described as they're working at doing as little as possible and drunks and jailbirds. So knowing that, why would she even consider getting into the car with this guy? She's so mad at herself after because she knows all those things. She knows 
the reputation. She knows the family, like in, the, in any small town. But, you know, there's good and bad things about a small town. And I always laugh. The goods is that, you know, you know everyone and they know you and they've known your family, known you all of your life. And the bad is you know everyone and they know you and they've known, known you all your life. That's definitely the case for Jephthah and Lucy. I think she just makes a bad choice one night. I think we can go down a path of knowing the right thing to do and making good choices. And then, you know, she has too much to drink one night and makes a bad choice. And she is kicking herself for it afterwards for a long time. She's very frustrated. And at some point, she decides that she's fine on her own. And then she sort of changes, and they actually end up getting married. Mm -hmm. I think she starts to see Jephthah, I think, is a complex character who can surprise people. He has a sort of core of sweetness in him, and she sees that in him a few times. He brings her a crib one night when he first hears that she's pregnant. She was just going to keep it a secret. He wants to do the right thing. That's always Jephthah's struggle in the book, is wanting to be a good man and, and trying to make the right choices to do that. So he brings her a crib, and she starts to see some of these real glimmers of sweetness in him and thinks, oh, there might actually be something here. He stops drinking for a while, and that's a really compelling change for him because he has, you know, been an alcoholic for a, a time. And so she thinks, you know, something's different here, and this could be different. He could be better or different. But even his own family doesn't seem to want him to be better because they wanted you to stay with them. Does I, that make sense? No, it does. And I definitely think there are some of that. And Deanna and Bobby, his brother and sister, are certainly great examples of people who don't want you to improve. They don't want you to change. They want you to stay right where you are. And I think he definitely gets weighted down by that. They certainly don't have his back when he is, you know, really trying to make these changes and trying to be a better person. It's not as if they are supportive of that effort. There's so many characters I could pick out, people <laughs> in my own hometown, that are like these people. Do you think that having her work at the Walmart, and that's a small town, mm -hmm. rural Tennessee thing that you say the Walmart, mm -hmm. not just Walmart. Do you think that those play into stereotypes of who we are as hillbillies? I hope not. I mean, I think, you know, the stereotypes sometimes have an element of truth to them. But I think that the antidote to stereotypes is character and knowing the people, because it's really hard to stereotype if you if you're actually talking about a person or a character. And so in this case, it was my hope to sort of take some of those things that may be read as stereotypes and do such a deep dive in them and into the characters that you would know the people underneath and really have a lot of empathy for them. Because you can't have empathy with a stereotype, right? But if you know the characters and the people underneath it, then you can understand a little bit more. And it starts to feel not like a stereotype and like a real story or like a person's story. Dolly Parton, who wrote a lot of the songs that we know from the book, you know, she played into that because she wanted to be seen as, okay, you can make fun of me all that you want to make fun of me, but I'm going to do it anyway. And so I think sometimes I see that with Lucy and Jephthah. You can do that if you want to, but I'm going to be who I am anyway. Yeah. Did you feel some of that when you were writing the book? I did worry as I was as I was working on it about whether some of these felt sort of stereotypical examples, but it's also true that you know, one of the big employers in a small town is the Walmart. <laughs> you know, often people are working two jobs and often and people do farm tobacco. And, you know, some of these things are true things and in some ways felt disingenuous to not include some of those details. As I was writing, I wanted to include what felt true to the place where I'd grown up and the stories that I'd heard 
again, just try to burrow underneath those stereotypes in a way that made the characters feel real as opposed to just sort of skimming the surface of it. Well, and you mentioned the tobacco farming. He talks about his allotment. Mm. What does that mean? It's a good question. I mean, you sort of get tagged with a specific amount that you can grow and sell. And I think that system has changed some now after some time and tobacco is not selling as much of it and for as much as, as you used to. So they have a specific amount that they can sell and grow every year. And when he's talking to somebody, he even refers to it, I think, as devil's weed. The sin crop. The, the sin crop. crop. That's okay. actually how, that's what we called it. The farm that I grew up on until I was five, we always had it and grew tobacco most years, not every year, but most years. And we had a small allotment, like four acres, but we called it the sin crop. But it was the only way people had to make money. It was one of the few things that they could grow Mm -hmm. because it's not cotton country. No, no. And it's not even great. It's rocky land and hilly land. (laughs) And that's why the allotments are small in East Tennessee. It's not like in, you know, North Carolina where you could get large corporations coming in and buying up these huge farms because there are huge farms. They're small family farms. Exactly. And Jephthah's family is one of those. And he thinks that they have a really small farm. But then come to find out his brother and sister have kind of been playing against him all the years. Mm -hmm. And so they've been paying him nothing. So do you think that helped him become who he was? I mean, by not having anything, you know, he's working really hard during the growing season. Sometimes. There's one time where he he works really hard because he's not drinking. So he's working really hard and doing a lot. And then I think in years prior, he had not been quite as useful on the farm as he So that may have played into the (laughs) reason that they... It may have played into it. You know, I think they felt a little as if they they deserved to give him less, that he hadn't really earned it. But also, they are sort of, in terms of a quote-unquote villain, they're a little bit the villain Mm -hmm. um, of the book. So they make, you know, they're just kind of mean to him. And sometimes it's a little bit deserved and sometimes it's not. He spends a lot of time at a place called Judy's. Mm -hmm. Now, Judy's a Yankee. Mm. How did Judy end up so successful in this town? Because she's not from there, and that's a big deal. No, she is not. She is not. So I think she ends up being successful in the town because she does what she had done in Boston, which was bartend, and she opens a bar. There are two bars in town, and then when the original bar run by the hometown boy burns down one night, she ends up with all the business. It's sort of an accident of fate that Judy ends up successful in town. Tell me a little bit about how the bar burned down, though, because that was kind of a funny story. Oh, (laughs) yeah, it burned down because it was really dry uh, summer and some teenage boys were smoking pot behind the bar and some of the grass caught fire and snaked up into the wiring and just burned the whole thing down. But part of it was because they were serving something called Everclear. Oh, well, And I had to look that up. That's so funny. Yeah, so the fire snakes through the wires of the bar and then gets inside and then it catches the Everclear, which is just like foolproof alcohol and that just explodes and burns up. And I can just see that happening. You know, I can see this fireball and them going, darn, where are we going to drink Where are we going to go now? Exactly. (laughs) So they head over to Judy's. (laughs) Yeah. And there's an old drunk and his name is Delnor. Mm -hmm. But he seems to be almost a sage in some ways. That was by design. I love Delnor. I just, I would happily sit on a bar stool next to Delnor for hours on end, I suspect. Yeah, I wanted him to function a little bit like a sage. I wanted him to almost be an example of what Jephthah might be if he continues down the road of drinking. Because Delnor is also an old drunk, but, you know, he's in a sort of steady state drunkenness. He's got to drink every day, but he can function a little bit. But he's lost his family. That's not really in the book, but in 
his character is that he's lost his family, so he knows something about losing things because of alcohol. So he sort of tries to give some wise counsel to Jephthah, and he loves Lucy, and he loves their baby. You know, I love Delnor, so <laughs> I wanted well, to give him some good qualities. He really wanted to help this young couple. He was one of the few people that really wanted them to succeed along with Judy mm-hmm. at the bar because she could see the path that they were following and how difficult it was, mm-hmm. you know, for the two of them. And he seemed to be one of those people who was going, no, man, you can't do that. You got to do it this way. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. And I think maybe Jephthah wouldn't have listened to other people, but he might have this person because he could kind of see himself in that yeah. later down the road. I think that's exactly right. But Judy was really strong to be able to come in and handle in this small town where she was never really going to fit. And I can't imagine what they said about her in church on Sunday. Oh, Lord, no. Well, she definitely, like I say, she'd never been to a beauty salon, and for sure she'd never been to church. So <laughs> she was definitely an outsider in the town. But I think sometimes that means that she got to say some things and do some things that other people might not get to. And she was able to see things more clearly because she did have that outside perspective. And they could recognize her as somebody who had been someplace else and seen other things. So maybe that gave her some credence. I don't know. Well, and I think, too, you know, bartenders sometimes, good bartenders feel like they've got a lot of wisdom because they've seen a lot and heard people talking a lot. She talks in the book about sort of having seen that the people who talk a lot at the bar and, and are really loud and have big sob stories, nothing really that bad has happened to them. But it's the people who are sort of sitting quietly on their bar stool, drinking night after night. And those are the people who've really experienced loss in their life and really had a hard time. So Judy's actually based on a real bartender that I knew when I was in my 20s living in Cambridge in Massachusetts and hanging out at a bar called the Cantab that had a bluegrass night on Tuesday nights. And I would go every Tuesday night (laughs) and just sit. And I loved watching this bartender, Judy, sort of dispense with people who were, you know, jerks. And but really, she she was very gruff. But when you got to know her, she was actually really kind. And I just love that. So I kept her. I wanted to bring her with me. <laughs> well, I know why you were at Bluegrass Night every night, because you obviously love the music. I do. And you talked about Carter's Family Fold, mm-hmm. which I knew exactly what you were talking about. But did other readers know what you meant? And it's really hard. I, you know, It's funny that you asked that. We struggled with how to identify it in the book, because the full name is Carter's Family Fold. But they would never have called it that. Um, we didn't ever call it that growing up. We just called it the Fold or Carter's. And so it was a struggle to figure out how to identify it in a way that would feel true to these characters and what they would have said, but also let people who don't know it know what it is. It's possible that some people won't. And my hope is if they don't, they'll go look it up up. (laughs) and then plan a trip. (laughs) Exactly. It's worth going to. It is. Have you always appreciated country music? Because growing up, I did not. I was similar. I really appreciated bluegrass and the sort of like old kind of country, but I didn't have a great love for sort of on the radio country until I left Tennessee. And then I missed it, I think, because it's so prevalent and you hear it all the time that I didn't realize how much I'd missed that sort of soundtrack in the back of my head. And then once I left, I, I got much more excited about it. I still, though, prefer like the older musicians and older bluegrass. Yeah, what we consider the true sound of yeah. country music or the <laughs> true sound of bluegrass. Although, you know, there's lots of good stuff. Oh, gosh, You yeah. used a quote at the beginning from The Heart in the Hand, mm-hmm, which the is a fairly... Heart, yep. Yeah, I'm sorry, I misquoted it. But yeah, I mean, that's a really good group that, you know, is not 
old, no, right? No, and that song, whenever I was sitting down to write Jephthah, that's what I would put on just to try to get in his head more quickly because sometimes, you know, when you're writing, it can be hard to get back into the place where you were and get back into your character's head, and that was always a really quick way to try to situate myself in Jephthah's brain. He was actually based on somebody that you met. I met someone very briefly, a Tennessee guy whose name was Jephthah. I just loved that name. I really did. And I sort of couldn't stop thinking about, I had already had Lucy's character sort of roughly in my head. And I I knew that she needed someone. It wasn't just her story. I knew that it was going to be the story of someone else as well. It was going to be their story a little bit. And so I had this name and I just couldn't stop thinking about it and thought, oh, that's the name for this character. And then he kind of grew from there. Another really strong woman. And they're basically Lucy, Judy, and then Llewellyn. Mm -hmm. And Llewellyn is the woman who ended up raising Lucy. She was her mom's best friend. Mm -hmm. And once her parents were killed in the car accident uh, by a drunken driver, which is also a big deal, then Llewellyn comes into Lucy's life. They're in the middle of a fight. Lucy's reaction to Llewellyn is, Lucy had been fine being waterboarded by love when it was just her. But now she had someone else to worry about. And this is right after she finds out that she's pregnant. Because I thought that just really stood out. Thank you. I love that line as well. So (laughs) I think Llewellyn is a person who loves extremely deeply, sometimes aggressively. She's like a kid with a cat where they, you know, they just want to squeeze it so hard. (laughs) That's Llewellyn. She wants to help Lucy and wants to love her and wants to be sort of the best kind of mother that she can be, but Lucy's not her child and comes into her life late at age 13, so she doesn't always quite know how to do that. Frankly, I've got four kids. I'm not sure I always know how to do it. I don't think anybody ever does. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're all feeling our way to it. But Llewellyn, again, she's just a strong character and larger-than-life person and loves in a way that can feel amazing when you need it and can feel suffocating when you don't. Well, you also talked about how Llewellyn would go to the Walmart and hand out home advice to the people in the garden department. Yes, no, she held court. Yep, she thinks the garden department is her front porch. So she'll sit there all day. She might be there right now. I really wanted more of her backstory. So, you know, think about that for later, because I wanted to know who she was, why she stayed unmarried, in this rural town that I'm sure everybody was talking about her mm-hmm. you know, why she never got married. I mean, I can just hear all the gossip. Thank you. That's a good suggestion. My second book actually takes place in the same place and some of the side characters oh, good. come back. So I may steal Llewellyn back in a little bit more. Well, we do go through some tragedies. And one of them is at a time when Jephthah, he's been sober. Lucy's very excited. And then he loses his dog. Yeah. The dog's name was? Crystal Gale. And she's named after the singer. Mm -hmm. She has a very long, sort of long brown mane. When something like that happens, it can just totally flip a person and totally change. I don't know if it was just that one thing or if it was just everything that ended up happening, you know. I think that was really the straw that broke the camel for for Jephthah. I mean, Crystal Gale was his oldest friend, really, and kind of the only person who really ever believed he could... In as much as a dog can believe you can do something in life, then then Crystal Gale believed he could and loved him. And I think losing her in the way he did particularly sort of broke Jephthah. It really was hard for him. It was probably the only unconditional love he had ever had. That's exactly right. Yeah, he didn't have a lot of love in his life. Didn't have a lot of good role models. I have a cousin who I could see Jephthah in just that same almost brokenness. 
you know, that comes from being just totally, you know, never given credit for anything that you do. Yeah. And I saw Jephthah that way. Even in school, he could never quite get past that stigma. He definitely gets weighted with the reputation of his family. You know, sometimes that's deserved and sometimes that's not. And in Jephthah's case, that's really true. You know, there are moments, I mean, he is an alcoholic. He doesn't make great choices all the time. So sometimes he deserved that, but other times he really didn't. And he really was trying. And I think that's what Lucy saw when she decided to marry him was that she saw how much he was trying. And Mm -hmm. she sort of saw, she was one of the few people who could see the possibility and the good there and the desire to be good. The song Shady Grove seems to be a theme that recurs. Why is that? Because I don't think the lyrics are ever listed, right? They're listed very briefly. Okay. Um, There's two verses. Some come here to fiddle and dance. Some come here to tarry. Some come here to fiddle and dance. I come here to marry. I love that song. I really do. I think it's such such a beautiful song and said something about Jephthah. It was the first song he learned to play on the mandolin. I think it says something about him and kind of what he wants in life. I think sometimes he thinks he's one of the fiddle and dancers, one of the terriers. But in fact, actually, he's on the other side for more serious reasons in life and has a, a more serious path than even he gives himself credit for. I'm not sure he could have given himself credit for it because I don't think anybody ever said anything different. Yeah. but And that's always the sad thing, right? Like you look at someone, and this happens everywhere in life, right, where people have a gift and are able to do something. He's a really good mandolin player. I hope that comes across in the book when they're able to do something really well, but they're never given the encouragement or never given the opportunity. And, you know, you think about the number of beautiful musicians or artists or writers or mathematicians or whatever it is that we lose in any given generation because they just didn't get the opportunities to show that and to really expand on it. And he definitely falls into that category. Lucy feels like she has to pay the price for getting pregnant. Why is that? Why do we feel like that we've committed a sin so we have to live with that? And why does Lucy believe that? Hmm. That is a good question. A very good question. Why do we take so much guilt upon ourselves? Exactly. um, You know, and I think for her, she feels so deeply that she was kind of on a path to get out. And sometimes, you know, she really wanted that path. And sometimes she was kind of on it because everybody else had wanted it for her. And so I think for her, she feels so guilty that she blew that up, that she messed that path up. And so she feels that she needs to shoulder that burden. Probably the truth is, you know, she shouldn't or that, you know, that she takes too much upon herself and carries too much guilt. But she certainly believes that in the moment. Well, I hope that that will change. You know, we see more empowerment for women right now. But I think in small rural East Tennessee towns. I was there two weeks ago, and I don't know that a lot of that's changed. You know, those women seem to still fit that same role that our mothers did and that their grandmothers did. I hope it changes too. You know, it's funny, I mentioned in my bio that I had this essay, how killing a deer made me a feminist, because my brothers told me I couldn't do it, that, that I wouldn't be able to to be a deer hunter. But what actually made me a feminist was not proving them wrong. What actually did was that I realized that I cried when the deer died. And when she fell, it was a perfect shot. She fell right over. I cried because I realized that I'd actually been very reactionary and had let these boys tell me something. And then I had done it, even though I didn't necessarily 
fully want to, I think. And so I realized, okay, I've, I've let myself be guided and created by somebody else's view of me. And that's actually why I became a feminist, was not the act of killing the deer, was, but was realizing what I had kind of let myself be guided by. And so I hope that changes. My fingers are crossed for it. I think there's a lot of systemic issues that make it a challenge sometime. Well, in your own experience, probably is some of Lucy and Jephthah's experience. You know, Lucy was following a path because she was supposed to, and Jephthah was too, Mm -hmm. because both of them were playing into what other people thought about them. At the end, when they both kind of become their own persons, you know, it changes you somehow. And both of them really made that change at the end of the book. Um, Thank you. I'm happy to hear that, because that was certainly my intention, was that they would sort of at the end of the book be making the choice that they wanted to make that were the right ones for them, that they'd sort of come into their own at that point. What did you want your readers to get from this story? I get into books for the characters. I read books for characters and write books for characters. To the extent there are themes, they are a byproduct of wondering who these characters are. Mm -hmm. So I think I hope people will read the book and come out with an appreciation for Jephthah and Lucy and what their life was like and, you know, feel although there are bad things that happen, feel some hope at the end that there's a possibility that they'll be able to keep going. And I think, you know, sometimes with the South in general, with Appalachia, there can be sometimes a tendency to look at, you know, you can go in sort of two ways. It'll be all bad. And you just get these news reports that are so bad and really paint one picture. And then sometimes you'll get the other side, which is sort of all of this bucolic rural area and it's sort of Southern living and all beautiful. And really, I think the truth is most life, no matter where you are, happens right in the middle. It's not all good and it's not all bad. Nobody's all good or all bad. For Jephthah and Lucy, I hope people leave sort of with an understanding that, you know, they've got these circumstances they're in the middle of. They've been dealt a not great hand, but they're going to keep getting through it, you know, with warmth and humor and music and love when they can get it and just keep going. Well, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. We've reached the end of our time for today's book talk. I've been speaking with Elizabeth Child Shelburne, author of Holding On to Nothing, published by Blair. I'm Linda Lloyd, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.